0: Well, good morning, Redemption Tempe. Good morning, Thank you. My name is Will Vakurvich, one of the pastors here. Excited to jump into God's Word. Uh, it was early March of 2010 when I received a phone call from my, my new bride. We were just newlyweds, just married a few, a few months. And I could tell as soon as I heard her voice on the phone, she was really excited. She had good news she was going to share. And, uh, and so I asked what was going on. And she said, I have a coworker who just offered us two free tickets to go see March Madness. Now, I'm not a huge basketball fan, but I know enough to know that if somebody's going to offer you tickets to go see March Madness for free, this is a good day. So we were, we were excited. You know, we had just moved here. We're like, all right, March Madness, ASU, let's go. This is going to be awesome. Don't really know what to expect. Like, we assume we know what to expect. We're going to go see some guys play basketball, right? There's going to be a lot of people. Uh, it's going to be super exciting. And, and so we were excited. Like, even as, like, not great basketball fans, like, we were excited. So, you know, the evening comes. We, uh, this is how long ago it was. We typed the address into our GPS, Right? Like, not on our phone, but like, remember, you used to plug them in, right? The GPS things, yeah. So, we type, we type the address in and we're driving. We're driving to, to the ASU uh, stadium, arena. What do you call it for basketball? Arena, thank you, yeah. You could tell how much I love basketball right now. I am not Jim Mullins. So, um, So, as we're getting there, like, we're getting closer and closer, and something is like, it doesn't quite feel right because this is March Madness like the biggest tournament in college basketball but there's not a lot of traffic. And so I'm like, uh, are we is this the right like are we in the right place and we're like getting closer and closer and there's still not a lot of traffic." And then like we pull into the parking lot and it was really easy to find a parking spot. And so now we're like, "Okay, is this the wrong date? Like, what?" What is going on? Like, I assumed I knew what to expect about NCAA, March Madness. This is the tournament. But like reality was not shaping out the way I assumed that it would. And so, you know, we go, we're going up the steps into the arena. Thank you. And like there's people there, like clearly something's going on, but it wasn't what I expected. Like, I'm thinking, like, okay, there's gonna be like, you know, ESPN's gonna be here. Like the whole deal, right? It's March Madness. Like, this is the biggest tournament for college basketball in the nation. And so we get there, and we finally ask the the lady who was, like, scanning the tickets, like, what is going on? Like, isn't this March Madness? And she's like, yeah, no, this is is March Madness. This is the um, Women's Constellation Tournament of March Madness. Like, the teams that couldn't make, like, the real, for real March Madness, we got tickets to, like, the, you know, basically the participation trophy version of that tournament. (laughs) Now, it was fun. We had a great, great game, you know, watching the ladies and all of that. But I wonder if you've ever had that experience, right? Where, like, you have your set expectations. You have your assumptions. My mom would make a joke about, like, you know what happens when you assume, but we're at church on a Sunday, so I can't say that. But when our expectations and our assumptions are confronted with reality, oftentimes things are redefined for us. And so while we had a great time at the game, we realized our expectations were way off. This is what we're going to see happen with the disciples today in our passage. They have expectations of who Jesus is, what his glory is like, what obedience to him looks like, what discipleship looks like. But the reality is the love of Jesus displayed on the cross redefines everything for us. So pray with me and then we'll jump into our text. Jesus, we need you. This passage, it calls us to your cross. And that is a place of love and acceptance and that is a place of judgment and wrath. And so, Jesus, would you call us to yourself through your word? Would your spirit be working on our hearts, those areas of our hearts that just need encouragement? Jesus, would you bring love and hope in those areas of our hearts that are hardened? Or would you bring conviction that leads us to repentance? So we trust you with this time. Spirit, would you speak through me and would you work in us here now today? We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to pick up in John chapter 13. We're going to be starting in verse 31. In our passage today, we're going to see three things. We're going to see that uh, the love of Jesus redefines glory. The love of Jesus redefines obedience. and The love of Jesus redefines discipleship. So let's pick up in verse 31. It says this, when he had gone out, Jesus says, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. So we see this passage starts off. It says, when he had gone out, we have to ask, who is the he? Well, the he is Judas, who Josh talked about last week. Judas, who is going out to betray Jesus, to, to um, sell him out for, you know, 30 pieces of silver, this, this story. And we see Jesus pick up on that. And he says, now, now that this event of, the, of Judas, the betrayer, going to betray him, now that this have, has occurred, that this is setting in motion the string of events where Jesus will be arrested. It'll be, you know, this horrible mockery of a trial. He'll be beaten. He'll be crucified. He'll be killed. And then eventually he'll be resurrected and ascend to the right hand of the Father. Now that Judas has started that, now that the betrayal has started, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now is Jesus glorified. In This moment of betrayal is Jesus glorified. Now, not all of us grew up in the church. Glory feels like a very churchy word. I know we've talked about it throughout this series, but what is being communicated here in this word glory is is this concept of like weight or, or gravity. You know those moments in life that you just can't help but respond with reverence? Maybe it's a moment of birth, a final breath on a deathbed. A moment of marriage is two people who take a covenant of living life before God, committed to one another seriously. These moments where there's no part of you that even wants to scroll on your social media feel, uh, you know, threads or, or, or be distracted. You know that the weight of the moment, the glory of the moment draws your attention in. Right? It's, it's being in the presence of somebody that you revere. Your language is different. Your posture may be different. The sense of glory. The original word actually comes from the clothing that a king would wear. Right? Think back to like ancient times. You know, most folks are wearing robes and we know things like, you know, dyes and colored fabrics were really, really, really expensive. So most folks just kind of wore like kind of plain beige colors, right? For those of you who watch The Chosen, you know. You know what this looks like. And then we have an image of a king. with his his robes, with his crowns, with different colored garments, this splendor or this glory. It's how a king would dress. You know just on sight that there's a weight, a magnitude, a gravity to, to this person. And that would have been in the disciples' minds, this concept of glory. So if Jesus is saying now he's glorified, what does that mean? What does it mean that in this moment, is Jesus glorified. Throughout the gospels, we've seen Jesus telling his followers, now is not my time. My hour has not yet come. But here we see a shift in the narrative. Now he says, now is the time. In the midst of this moment of betrayal, as he's being led eventually to the cross, now is Jesus glorified. There's something in this, knowing what's coming, knowing what's ahead for Jesus, that he will be facing the cross on our behalf. There's something beautiful about this kind of glory. It's not this glory that uses authority to demand respect, it's this sacrificial, self giving, generous glory that costs him deeply. And we love these stories. There's something about us that is just drawn to the story of sacrifice, whether it's, you know, William Wallace at the end of Braveheart laying down his life for his country, whether it's, you know, one of my favorites, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in the end of Terminator 2, dipping down into the molten lava to destroy this horrible future that that would hurt mankind and giving himself up. We used to watch with the boys uh, the the old Jungle Book movie, right? Baloo stepping in between Mowgli and Shere Khan and protecting this little man cub, laying down his life for his friend. There's something compelling about these stories that draw us in, this weight of the sacrificial glory. As much as I love the pop culture references, I I have to tell you guys that there's there's a story that moves me more (laughs) than Terminator 2. And it's actually the story of my favorite Christmas present I've ever received. And I brought it here with me today. Uh, It's normally, uh, I carry it with me in my little wallet clip. And it's this. If you're in the front, you can see it. If you're in the back, you may have a hard time. It's a $10 bill. This was the greatest Christmas present I've received. Uh, This Christmas, as we were opening gifts, my oldest son came across the room to me and he handed me an envelope with a, you know, pretty typical kind of cliched Hallmark Christmas card. And, you know, he wrote, love you, Dad. Love, Will. And, and I, you know, being this you know, kind, generous father that I am who always assumes the best, the first things out of my mouth were, where did you get $10? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's 10. He doesn't have a job. This is a legitimate question, right? Where did you get $10. And so he told me. He said, "Well, I was at Grandma and Grandpa's house. Now, to understand Grandma and Grandpa's house, if you could imagine with me, like, like Disneyland and like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory and like Lord of the Flies, all smushed into one. This is Grandma and Grandpa's house. Okay, like my boys, when they go to Grandma, Grandma and Grandpa. If you're watching live stream, we love you. Thank you for taking the boys. Like, set the record straight." But when when our boys go to Grandma and Grandpa's house, it's like party time, right? Like, at our house, bedtime is 8 o'clock. We're doing the bedtime routine. You know, they're snoring by 8.30. Grandma and Grandpa's house, it's like the bedtime routine might start at 9.30. Grandma's going to read, like, 700 books and hang out and let them play on tablets and this whole deal, right? Like, at, at our house, breakfast might be waffles. At Grandma and Grandpa's house, breakfast would be, like, waffles with syrup and whipped cream and sprinkles and M&Ms and gummy worms and like chocolate syrup, right? So he said, we were at grandma and grandpa's house. And I asked grandma if there was chores that I could do to get money to give you a Christmas present. When you know who it is that's giving you the gift and what it costs them to give you this gift, it redefined things for you. It reframes how we understand the gift. And so what Jesus is saying here is there is a new kind of glory because of the gift he is about to give. Because if we understand who Jesus is, God in the flesh The son of God who was with God in the beginning through whom all things were created, who created this perfect creation for man and woman to enjoy with complete shalom, complete universal flourishing. And one of the first things we did was wreck it. This God who even in that moment makes a promise for us that things will not always be this way. That one will come who will crush the the head of the snake who has struck his heel. That there is hope for a savior who will come. This is the Jesus who is offering this gift. This word made flesh, all powerful creator who humbled himself to the point of being born as a baby. Relying upon Mary and Joseph to keep him alive. This Jesus who led a perfect life, who loved unconditionally, who healed and who welcomed in those who were far away, who included in community those who were cast off. This Jesus who spoke truth to power when it was corrupt. Jesus who led a sinless, perfect life, who was accused, betrayed, denied, abandoned, murdered, tortured for us. This is the Jesus who stands offering this gift. This God, the Father, who loves us so much that he sent his son for us. This is the cost of the gift. When we understand what is going on with this newly imagined kind of glory, we begin to feel the weight and magnitude of it. It's not just a king who has power or authority, who demands obedience, It's a king who willingly lays his life down for you and for me. These stories, we love these stories because it does something to our affections. It stirs something up in our hearts. We we can't help but respond, right? I told the story of my son and you guys are like, oh, that's the natural response. It's moving to hear of sacrifice for someone else that compels us. And this is what we see in the gospel. Jesus is saying, now the the son is glorified. Now the father is glorified in him because this sacrifice moves our hearts from just begrudging obedience to worship, to praise, to adoration. Not we have to, but we get to. This is the response because of the great sacrifice that was given on our account. Now we get to go demonstrate this to others. This is what we see in this next movement as we pick back up in chapter 13, starting in verse 34. Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, part of this takes a little unpacking. Jesus says this is a new commandment to love one another. But if we go back into the Old Testament law in in multiple times, specifically, uh, or one instance is in Leviticus chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 18, which will be on the screen here, we see that this is not a new commandment. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it's not the loving one another that's the new commandment. It's the manner in which we love one another. Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. Jesus, who we've talked about, is headed to the cross as he has loved us, so we are to love one another. Jesus, who previously the same evening in which this narrative takes place is washed the disciples' feet. That's how we are to love one another. Jesus, who in that moment washes the feet of Judas, who he knows will betray him. That's how we are to love one another. In the way Jesus loved us, sacrificially, it cost him something laid his life down. That's the way we are called to love one another. And then something happens with this. When God's people are loving one another as Jesus has loved us, then the world will know you are my disciples. That's how it works. We see the love of Jesus demonstrator, demonstrated amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, and then the watching world sees and knows that we follow Jesus. I had a conversation about uh, eight or nine months ago w- with a good friend. Um, he he owns the martial arts studio where uh, my my boys and I work out, and um, you know I've been I've been. Trying to, trying to show what Jesus is like to him, trying to share what Jesus is like with him. And, and so I got a, a Facebook messenger message. And he said, hey, man, I got a church question. Can we talk? Let's grab lunch. And so I'm like, yeah, right? Like, it's working. I was disappointed. <laughs> so we, we met up for lunch, and, and he was telling me a, a, about a friend he has, um, who's also a Christian. And he was like, you know, my friend, like, He's been really, really involved with this church for like 20, 25 years. And he just told me that he's leaving his church. And I'm just like confused. I'm like, okay, well, what's, you know, what's going on? And he was like, well, that's the thing. Like, I don't, I don't know what you guys believe, but I, like I can guess. And he was like, I thought it was like, I don't know, his church doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe in Jesus or like stop believing the Bible or something like that. And I'm like, well, yeah, what, like, what was it? He was like, well, the things that he brought up were, He disagreed with what his church thought about masks and politics and the racial justice conversation. He was like, do Christians leave churches over those kinds of things? And so I had to do this awkward like, "Uh, well, sometimes, unfortunately. Now, please hear me. I'm not communicating that there's never a reason to leave your church. There are valid reasons for that. What we have to keep in mind is what are like sin issues? And what's preference? Because those are different. What Jesus is calling us to is to sacrificially lay down our lives for one another. Then the world will know that we actually follow Jesus. The implication here. Is that if you are not sacrificially laying your life down for one another, you are breaking this new commandment. Another word for breaking a commandment is sin. So what this means is that you can go through life and not say the bad words and not tell lies and not cheat on your spouse and not get drunk and not do drugs and not check all of the little boxes. But if you do not demonstrate sacrificial love for one another, Jesus says you are breaking a commandment. This is a commandment whose purpose in this passage is to demonstrate to people who do not yet know Jesus that we follow him. There is a missional intention behind this commandment. When we get this commandment right, we see people who don't yet know Jesus invited into God's family. We see the church grow. We see the name of Christ be glorified and magnified in our communities, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. We see things beginning to go as the way God intended them to be. But when we don't, we see division. We see hostility with one another. We see bickering and fighting and all of these things that sling mud on the name of Jesus. He takes this seriously. So we have to as well as a church. Jesus invites us into this relationship with God's people to show what his love is like, his sacrificial love, his costly love. It costs us something to live this way. It's not always easy. It's nice when we can give out of the abundance of what we have and it's like, no big deal. We can just write the check. But Jesus calls us to painful sacrifice, to obedience, right? That's why when we talk about Tempe Ten, we say things like, this means you may have to give up two Starbucks a month. If you're like me, that caffeine matters. You may have to give up eating lunch out once a month. Now, this is not a huge sacrifice, but it costs us something to give. We do this, not because we're obligated to or because you think your church has a cool program. We do this to demonstrate the ways in which Jesus sacrificed for us. We will now sacrifice for other people, namely the city of Tempe. There's a purpose and intentionality behind this, and it's trying prayerfully to be faithful to this commandment. As you love one another as I have loved you, then the world will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. What comes to mind in this moment? Not hypothetically speaking. For you, what images are being stirred up? Who is the person that God is calling you to love sacrificially? What is that act that he is calling you to do? Jesus died so that we can be forgiven. Is there someone that even now, right now, the spirit is bringing to mind that you need to forgive? Is there someone that has wronged you and has deserved your vengeance and wrath? That Jesus is calling you to walk in his footsteps and forgive even though they don't deserve it. You're right. They don't deserve it. Neither did you. Neither do I. But Jesus laid his life down anyways. That is a beautiful image. That is what we're called to. That is what compels people who don't yet know Jesus to begin to follow him. Let's continue on. So first we saw that love redefines glory. Then we see love redefines obedience. This is a commandment. It's not a suggestion. Love redefines obedience. And now we'll see love redefines discipleship. Discipleship, just the fancy church word of what it means to follow Jesus, to be obedient to him, to walk in his ways. Love redefines discipleship. We'll pick up in chapter 13, verse 36. This is what we read. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Can we pause here real quick? I just love, I love this moment because Peter has already said like, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the promised one, the son of God. Like, we're going to follow you. Like, it's all about you, Jesus. So we know how Peter views Jesus. Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. That sounds pretty big. Right, like if you're following Jesus and he's like, I'm giving you a new commandment, you should probably pay attention to that. Peter's very first response is, where are you going? Is that not strange to anyone else? Like, can you unpack this commandment? Like, what does this mean? No, none of that. Just where are you going, Jesus? Because Jesus had said, I'm going somewhere you cannot follow. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. See, love redefining discipleship. What does that mean? Why would Peter ask him, where are you going? What does that have to do with what's going on? In the mind of the disciples, Jesus has made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. He is about to set things right. They have been oppressed by the Roman Empire for decades. They have been waiting for this promised Messiah who was going to restore their country back to its uh, former glory and power and authority and wealth and riches. They're ready. It's time. Jesus is now returned to Jerusalem. He's saying now is the time that the Son of Man is glorified. We're ready to go. And we see ride or die Peter, who's like, all right, Jesus, where are we going? Where are you going? Because I'm coming with you. The image here is this like shoulder to shoulder, let's get the shield, let's get the sword, like we're rushing into battle because we're going to take this thing by force. And Jesus says, you don't get it. You can't follow me. He says, no, 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 Jesus, I will follow you. As a matter of fact, Jesus, I will even lay down my life for you. And I think we see a glimpse of this in some of the other gospels, right? Like when the soldiers come, if you've been around church, you may know this story. Like the soldiers come to arrest Jesus and there's Peter and he like gets a sword and like tries to chop off someone's head, but he's so horrible with the sword. He just like gets their ear to which Jesus responds by picking up the ear and healing the one who would come arrest him. Peter had an idea of what it meant to follow Jesus. Peter had an idea of what discipleship meant. Discipleship by force. Inaugurating God's kingdom through violence and any means necessary. And Jesus says, you don't get it. That's not what this is. I wonder if you've had that experience. We have these assumptions of what we think it means to follow Jesus, what we assume it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I remember it was the summer uh, when I came to faith and I had just finished my, my eighth grade year going into my freshman year of high school and we did the summer camp thing, right? Some of you guys can relate to this, you know, summer camp experience. And so I was an incoming fresh, freshman, kind of goofy, didn't really feel like I fit in anywhere. And, you know, one of the early nights in the camp, they did the, the altar call, right? Like come up to the front if you wanna, if you wanna accept Jesus. And so I'm like, okay, let's, let's do this. I was really excited. And so say the prayer, you know, do the thing. And then here I am, like this brand new Christian trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And from that summer camp experience, I was like, hey, following Jesus is incredible. Because this is what happened. First, all of these cool, like, varsity football players are, like, high-fiving me and, like, you just accepted Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, I think that means I'm cool now. And then, like, after the, the cool guys were all, like, high-fiving me and all that, then were, like, you know, the really cute girls that were, like, tears in their eyes. Like, oh, my goodness, come here. Like, you love Jesus. And I was, like, I love Jesus. This is awesome. And then I spent the rest of the week, like, playing games and singing songs about Jesus and learning about Jesus and having all these cool, like, young adult volunteers are, like, pouring into me Is this goofy, like, 13, 14-year-old kid, and I'm like, oh, this is incredible. Like, I'm going to follow Jesus every day. And then I got home, and I had to do things like mow the lawn and make my bed and go to school and do homework and live everyday life. And the cute girls didn't hug me anymore. (laughs) And the cool football guys were not giving me high fives. And then I started to try to figure out, like, well, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus outside of a really fun summer camp? Which is what we're all trying to do. And we bring, we bring our assumptions to it. We think we're going to March Madness when Jesus may have something else in mind. And that's what Jesus is explaining here. Following Jesus means you're actually following Jesus. Not what you want Jesus to do. Not who you want Jesus to be. But who Jesus has proven himself as. And so as much as we may want to transform the culture and we're going to go out there and take it by force, that is not what Jesus did. He laid down his life sacrificially, full of love and humility and gentleness, and he invites us to do the same. And while we may want to go out there and just affirm culture and show that we're relevant and we're cool and we're hip, Jesus didn't do that either. Jesus spoke truth to power. Jesus called out sin. Jesus took sin so seriously, he died because of it. We're called to do the same. We may want to work these deals, these negotiations out with God. Like, okay, God, look, look, it's the, it's the if-then, right? Like, if I read my Bible every single day, then I'm going to have a great marriage, right? Right? Like, right, Jesus? Like, come on, we can work this deal out. Maybe. Maybe. Okay, Jesus, if I pray really, really, really hard, then that means my kids will always walk with you and like nothing bad will ever happen to them. The problem is I can't find that verse in scripture. Now, we wouldn't say that we would buy into the prosperity gospel, like this idea of like, if we just try hard enough and have enough faith, God's gonna bless us with like, you know, a private jet and like, a yacht and all this like, extravagant stuff. But functionally, I wonder for how many of you do you function in that role? Jesus, I have been obedient. Why would you give me this hard situation? I've been faithful to you. Why would I ever suffer for one minute in my life? I've tried. So I show up to church at least three times a month. Jesus, come on. How could any bad thing ever happen to me? The problem is he didn't promise that. The problem is as he's redefining, I'm making it rain. (laughs) As he's redefining what glory is, it's redefined because of the cross. As he's redefining what obedience is, it's redefined because of the cross. And now as he's redefining what discipleship is, it is redefined because of the cross, an instrument of torture and execution. We are not called to a life of comfort. We are called to a life of sacrifice for the other. I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer frames this in his book, Cost of Discipleship. He says this, it says discipleship means adherence to the person of Jesus and therefore submission to the law of Christ, which is the law of the cross, of the cross. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids us to come and die. Not because he's really morbid. Not because it's some kind of like depressing religion that wants everyone to be sad and, you know, we're black all the time, like a lot of us do. But because the reality is, is that we always find life through death. We find hope through the death of Jesus. We find true life in his sacrifice. We find meaning as Christians in the ways that we can lay down our lives for one another so that others who don't yet know who Jesus is would come to know him. This is the upside-down kingdom that Jesus reveals to us. The greatest among you must be the servant. Don't think that I came to be served, but actually to serve. This is the life that Jesus is inviting you into, church. This is the life that Jesus is inviting you to display for the sake of the watching world. This is the life he is commanding with this new commandment. And if we are to be obedient to him, then this is the life that we step into through the help of his spirit. This is what we're called to as God's people. Not a culture war, but a humble submission. A generous sacrifice walking in the footsteps of Jesus. So now we get an opportunity to respond to this cross. And we do that in a few ways. Brandon and the band will come up and we'll get to respond to Jesus and his sacrifice by singing because we serve a God who is worthy of our praise. We we'll respond through taking communion, and there's there's elements up here, there's elements in the in the side rooms. It's your own time when you're ready. We invite you to come up. We take this meal. One of the reasons, the many reasons, we take this meal every week is to remember the cross, more clearly what Jesus did on the cross, how His love was displayed on the cross. The the bread, the cracker, which. Symbolizes his body, which was given for you. We hear that so often, but it's true. For you individually and for me and for us and for all of God's people throughout time and across the globe, his body, which was given for us, his blood represented in the juice of the wine, which was shed on our behalf. We do this to remember the cross because this is the root of our identity as those who would say they follow Jesus. And this, that may not be how you identify yourself. We know, we are so thankful, uh, or at least we strive to be a church where there are people here who don't know Jesus. Thank you for that. And I feel compelled to back up in the sermon a bit and and, and just acknowledge that there are times when God's people do not act like God's people. One of the beautiful aspects of our religion is that we ask for forgiveness. We acknowledge that we are not perfect and we serve a God because of his son's death and resurrection because of the cross, we receive forgiveness. And so we would ask for forgiveness as well as God's people who are not perfect for any ways that you may have encountered Christians who did not love one another well or did not love you well. We are sorry for that. That is not what we are called to. And as a church, we try to hold one another accountable. As a church and community, we try to live this thing out, but we acknowledge we don't always get it right. But God is still good. And God is faithful. And that's what this meal reminds us of. Not our perfection, but Jesus' perfection. We also respond through prayer. We pray because we serve a God who sees us, who hears us, who cares about us, and who acts in time and space. And so there there will be people on either side of the stage that would love to pray with you. And so I invite you, would you you pray with me before we move into our time of response where we'll sing and we'll take communion and, and we'll pray. Jesus, thank you. That feels most fitting. Thank you for your life. Thank you for putting on flesh. Thank you for dwelling amongst us. Thank you for laying your life down on our behalf. Thank you for the example of loving Peter. Thank you for loving him despite knowing that he would deny you. We thank you for loving us and forgiving us for all of the sins that we committed before we came to know you. And we thank you that you knew the sins that we have not yet committed and you still offer forgiveness. Thank you. Jesus, would you pour out your spirit on us and help us to love one another well in light of your glory defined by the cross. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. Jesus, not so that the name of Redemption Tempe could be made great or the name of any of the pastors here or leaders here could be made great, but Jesus, so that your name would be made known and worshiped and adored in the city of Tempe on earth as it is in heaven, in Chandler and Mesa and Gilbert and Phoenix and all the places where you have sent your people to love one another well so that the world will come to know your great love. We need your spirit for that. We cannot do it on our own. And we thank you that through your cross, you make that a possibility. You invite us in. Spirit, speak in this moment. Remind us of who we are in you. Invite us deeper into this relationship with you. Bring to mind the areas of sacrifice you are calling us to and help us to follow in your footsteps, Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen.